The Rebrand Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. Welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. This podcast tells the stories of world-changing marketing campaigns as told by the people who build them. In each episode, you'll hear an earful of brilliance from a marketer who has brought an iconic brand to life. Ready to hear the secrets and untold stories behind the brand you love? Then sit back, relax, and get ready for the rebrand. Here's the host of the Rebrand Podcast, the CEO of the Harkey Group, Scott Harkey. All right, welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, where we tell the untold stories of world-changing brand campaigns as told by the marketers who built them. I'm your host and founder of the Harkey Group, Scott Harkey. Joining us is Mike Linton, who's the former CMO at Ancestry. Mike's the former CMO at multiple publicly traded companies, including Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and most recently, Ancestry.com. Yesterday, Mike and I talked about rationalizing Best Buy's Geek Squad. We also were all over the place. We talked about how to be a great CMO and how to manage kind of different personalities in large corporate companies, how to make sure you have decision rights. It was fascinating yesterday. But we're going to continue with Mike. We got one of the top CMOs in the world. I mean, we're for some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, eBay, Best Buy, Ancestry. I mean, we've got a wealth of knowledge. And so we're going to keep Mike as long as we can, ask him a bunch of dumb questions, the ones that we we don't want to ask anybody else. And he's going to open up and, and give us uh, his insight to the business, which is great. But let's dive in, continue our conversation. Again, today we're going to discuss why best marketers CMO'd eBay. Uh, here's my conversation with Mike Linton, former CMO at Ancestry. Mike, we're back. What's up, brother? Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Um, All right. And I will say, even before we get too far into this, I had two long stints at both Best Buy and Farmers Insurance as CMO, roughly eight years of pop at those. But then I had some other ones, two other ones that were shorter or three other ones that were shorter. So I think the CMO job is still, it will just maintain the least consistent most inconsistently managed with the wildest expectations or the or the biggest range of expectations of all the C jobs. Damn, I love that you just said that, Mike, because I was thinking in my mind, I'm like, okay, I wonder <laughs> I wonder how long he's been at, at you know, because some CMOs last two years or a year and others, you, you've had eight-year stints. Can you, and you've been so gracious. I mean, you've talked about some things that you failed at in terms of product launches. And I think maybe why you have the insight of negotiating decision rights might be some of the two-year stints. Could you walk us through just quickly like what separated you from a, an, an eight-year stint at a, at a major Fortune 5000 brand versus a, a two-year stint? Yeah. So I think my first job as running marketing was at Remington. That was private equity and that was a shavers. I didn't have decision rights. I didn't even understand them when I went there. And I just saw a very short story. I wanted to reboot the brand as a younger person's brand and the agency at the time, and this is long, long ago, came in and said, hey, we got this guy in NASCAR. We think we can do a shaver and we can compare it to a NASCAR and the team. And there's this guy, he's just starting out, Jeff Gordon. He's really inexpensive. We could have him. The CEO at the time doesn't know NASCAR, doesn't know Jeff Gordon, says we should do Lee Iacocca. 
I am realizing, gosh, I, he's going to override me, and I'm not going to do Lee Iacocca. So this whole idea gets shot. It doesn't work. And I realized, gosh, I – but then I'm going to be held accountable for the advertising, which was less good. And at the time, that you, you didn't have – that was before you could do a lot of digital stuff. And, and so that was my prime driver. And I realized, gosh, the campaign I really wanted and the whole positioning I wanted is now dead because I didn't have the rights to make that call. That was a two-year job. And then I think the thing that worked out for me is, and the ones that worked out, they all didn't work out, was um, one, you get the right situation, you get the backing of the leaders with the right expectations, and then enough of the peer group is behind your vision. They all won't be behind it, but enough. And then you still have to produce the results, but people aren't immediately pecking at you. And then once you start putting up the results, and also if you hire a good team, because I, I think like 13 of my team have gone on to be CMOs. Um, wow. And that is mostly Best Buy, eBay, and Farmers. But the team then carries a lot of weight because they're really good. And you get a lot done, and the company respects you. And as we were discussing yesterday, you shoot the things that don't work first. Because then you get a lot more leeway with your peers when you want to take a risk. And so, so I think that's what happened. And so I look for decision rights. Is the company in a good space? And do they have the right expectations for what they want me to do? Because don't assume everybody sees marketing the same way. It's not like finance or IT. They may want you to work magic on something that is not magically workable. And you, you don't want that job because you're going to have expectations where you're, that are going to immediately not work. And you watch companies cycle through CMOs every two to three years. Does that scare you? I always think, you know, like I'm an entrepreneur. I've had an agency 15 years and as crazy as being an ad agency entrepreneur, I think a CMO is 10 times harder and actually way less secure. Did you think about that? I know a lot of CMOs think about that. And I, I really have a lot of empathy for what that could like feel like. I like, do. I do. And early in my career, it terrified me. And, um, yeah. and the first time when it didn't work out, it was awful. And I thought I'd done good work. I put up good numbers and it still didn't work. And I wasn't paying. I did not see the whole playing field and the, some of the politics and some things I, I might have seen later. But I, and that's when I also decided this is a lot like the major league manager job. You're going to get a lot of shit all the time. That goes with the job. Everybody wants to give you an opinion, which you should listen to because some of them are going to be right. But in the end, you still got to you want to control who's in the lineup and how you play the game. Eventually, I always think, gosh, if you just look at CMO tenure, even the some of the I have been fortunate to work with or know a bunch of fantastic CMOs, they, they you're going to change out over time because you or the company are probably going to want to go in a different direction. And my thing is, I want to change out playing the game I played, not the game you told me to play. And which does not make the end when they when they push you out or they decide they don't want you anymore less pleasant, but it does allow you not to take it as personally. Is that something you negotiate with your family that like, hey, this is part of the gig? Like, I, I mean, because I, I remember when I got fired, I got fired from CBS when I was working for CBS Corporation before I started my agency. And I'll never forget it. It was the worst experience of, of my life. It's pretty awful. Yeah. It's horrible. I don't negotiate that. I... <laughs> you know, it, it took a while to even figure out how to process it because the careers are so, you look at them on LinkedIn and they look fantastic, but no one puts yeah. the crappy part of your career on LinkedIn. That's all mostly emotional and 
you know, yeah. at the transition stage. And no, I, I think it's more, more inside your own head of how determined are you to play the game you want? And then I realized early, I did not want to be in a position where people told me what to do and then held me accountable for it and then fired me anyways. And I, I think that is the biggest risk of marketers today, which is a bunch of people want to vote. You let them vote. You put this thing up and it doesn't work. And and I also have this thing, you got to build the, the sales overnight brand over time, which is you got to make the sales now because the company needs the money. Mm, I love that. Sales overnight brand over time. One of my friends or another CMO or CEO, but I, but I think your job is to strike that balance. And sometimes the company needs way more sales right now. But sometimes they also need to be protecting for next year, and you have to you have to get the company to see that. I love, you and I just get on; we just we just go off in our own world. But now let's get into this EMO, eBay CMO. And look, you've helped make thirteen. I think I heard other CMOs. I mean, you're kind of now I, the new part I'm learning about you, like CMO whisperer. Um, why why did <laughs> why did CMOs? Is that what you're talking about? Why did CMOs go to eBay? Like, what was the structure that you found? Well, no, it, the biggest one for me was Best Buy, and then eBay was second. And I think they both had similar situations, though. And look, and eBay had a great set of you know Gary Briggs was CMO there, and he's he's a great CMO. And I think there, but if I look at Best Buy, which I think five of my lead team alone went on to be CMOs. That was the right situation in the right industry with the right culture where you could do stuff that not only could you do the regular stuff, like, yeah, you're going to run a media program. Yeah, you're going to run CRM. Yeah, you're going to run this. But you can invent things and you could have a chance to do new things, whether that was reward zone or the deals with the Rolling Stones or whatever. And same thing at eBay, you were on the front end of the lead, one of the lead, if not the lead company in the B2C space in digital, which was selling stuff. And I will say in both instances, I think one of the keys to, to becoming a CMO is, yeah, you can do all the marketing stuff, but you can speak financial. And all my jobs, I've hired a marketing CFO because I don't want my teams evaluating their own stuff and I want money to move wherever it does the most good. I don't want my team speaking marketing. The agency can come in and speak marketing but that my team has to translate for the company. And that means you have to talk sales, profit, revenue projections, market share, retention, other things that translate to money. You hired a marketing CFO to work within the marketing department? I've always had one, yeah. Well, I've had big budgets and I don't want like, I mean, at Best Buy, we're spending, they call it eight, 900 million a, a year. I definitely want a CFO, marketing CFO. And I've, I've had that at, at Farmers and, and eBay and Ancestry as well, which is I, I want. And that way, I also don't want the team saying, here's my ROI based on this. No. And, 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 uh, and finance just ripping you to shreds. Well, <laughs> yeah. the other thing you get is you get a finance person that gets to deal with contracts, long-term stuff, short-term stuff, all kinds of things, but also will bring the financial perspective to your team and say, two quarters out, it is going to be hard we're going to need more sales two quarters out. Start thinking about it right now. And the team can start adjusting to that. So in my mind, I try to create that job. And then usually there's a couple of people under it to break down the silos in the company. And also, so my team can talk financial and I will make them like, if you can't understand how we make money, you probably can't stay on the lead team. Wow. So 
it makes sense why 13 people under you become CMOs because do you think it's, it's of course the decision rights that we talked about, but this kind of financial business IQ that they bring to the table? I think plus also I was in pretty good situations in both of those from a, I mean, Best Buy was on fire for like six years. I remember. That was Minneapolis where you had General Mills, Pillsbury, Target, great agencies, other, you know. Who was your agency? Did you, who was your, would you, Wonder Men or who did you use up there? In, no, but, up there? Best Buy at the time, we had an inside house and I wow. left it. I, I left it inside. We outsourced media, but I, we, all the Best Buy stuff and we won two Evies that came from inside. Wow, that's cool. Um, but per my thing, yes, in our previous call, I don't change agencies when I come in on the, surely on the creative side. And I didn't there either. And the inside team was fabulous. So, so what would be like the top three things you would teach your VPs of marketing as they're wanting to be CMOs? I think, I don't know if there's three. I'll just go down my list. On how okay, I think or about 10 or three. I just made up three. Right. Like anywhere. I guess the first thing is you don't win. We win because we actually deliver the company financials today and protect tomorrow. That means you have to understand what all of marketing does. You can't just win your part. So compensation, I'm not going to comp you. I'm not going to comp you 100% for traffic if you're the acquisition front end. I'm going to comp you less than half off of your traffic. Because if you give me crappy traffic and it doesn't convert, we don't get sales. So I want the team to be thinking about, yeah, we got to win the game. And the game is really sales and profit and growth and retention. And so that's one. Two, we have to have a balance between short and long-term results and short and long-term tools. We're going to have one scorecard for that. So when we show up, there is a dominant scorecard for the whole department. There's not a room where everybody shows up with their own Here's the top of the funnel scorecard. Here's the mid funnel scorecard. Here's the bottom. Here's retention. Because then the person that is cheated is the customer. And the third thing to me is there's two dominant pieces of math. The consumer math, because that's the consumer telling you what they want to buy or not. And the company financials, because that's how investors care. And we are going to translate. We're going to try and make those two pieces of math meet in a way that the company knows what it's getting and the consumer, we're doing our best with company money with the consumer. So if you make me do three things, that's kind of it. And beneath that, there's a lot of execution, which is I hate when marketing departments show up and every function breaks out its own scorecard. No. And the other thing, if we're on the agency deal, the agency is invited into as much stuff as I can get them into. Uh, like they can come to business reviews, coffee chats, all hands, depending on what's sometimes not because it's confidential. But in turn, they can't come in and try and poach business and they better understand how we make money because I don't want a bunch of people like saying, but you know, they need to understand that how the score is kept and the score is always kept by the financials. Help us understand that that brand's agency relationship, maybe a little more. Could I dive a little more into that? Asking for a friend here. I'm just uh, you know, yeah, because I've had great client relationships. I've had others that, are, that have been poor. You know, help maybe for our uh, agency partners listening and our media vendors. And I know there's a lot of partners that listen to this show. Could you, I mean, who who's an example or whom is, is a great example of some great agencies you've worked with and why they were great? And, and what we'll learn from that. Well, look, I've worked at, with OMD and Publicis and RPA 
And I think I'll, I'll just use the farmer's example. That was RPA and Ooh, RPA uh, independent, and, by the way. I love RPA in Santa Monica. In LA and, and Publicis. Giant French company. <laughs> that was, I could put both the creative agency and the media agency in the same room. They wouldn't bid on the business. They wouldn't argue with each other, but we all knew what we had to deliver, which is here's the sales numbers. Here's what we think the advertising is driving. I also want the creatives to understand the financials. So when I am asking them to do something or telling them why we have to shift this to this media, they get it. They're just not trying to, and, and RPA was fantastic at this. And then the media folks, I want them in the room because one, I want them telling me what's driving sales, but I also want them to know what the creative is being delivered and then feeding on the creative by saying, hey, look, we see there's a big, we're going to go big in Instagram or we are going to go big here. Is this campaign going to be transferable to that? Because we, we want to shoot it all at once too. I can't do that if the agencies are not in the room, but I also can't do that if the agencies are going to try to undermine each other. And so the deal is you get to come in and you can see as much as I can share with you financially and everything else. But if you violate the rules, you're out. And no one has, to my knowledge, ever, ever done it. And you can't bring every agency in if you have a really big brand, but you can bring in your top, top one, two or three and in turn, they have a responsibility to respect that. And they're, man, I, I keep hearing over and over and over the financial IQ of an alignment of everybody gets everybody else from the C-suite kind of off your back and the confidence to do great work. Not off your back, but I, I think, one, you have a job that is, if you're in a B2C space with lots of cool creative, everyone sees it. And also everyone knows that's the front of the funnel. And... They're, they, so they're going to be on your back because that goes with the job. And if you don't like that, you shouldn't ever take the job. <laughs> Thank you for correcting me. Yeah, no, you're right. Everyone can see it and that goes with the job. But two, essentially, you are driving a ton of the revenue and the profit for the company. Your ability to translate what you're doing to the rest of the company can or not will dial up the heat on you more or less. And sometimes you're just, you know, it's going to be really hot and it's going to be too hot and you're going to get shot. Your best chance, though, is to be saying, here's what I'm trying to do with this and here's how it's going to work. And if it doesn't work, I'll be back to you with plan B. And it, it, I try never to go in and say, look, this is super creative and it's really, it's really great. And yes, we got great recall results and everything else, which is great. But if you're not making the sales, no one cares. And because you're talking people's bonus, you're talking everything else, and you have the thing that is changeable at speed and visible at speed. And so you don't want to be talking about it in a way that it's 100% judgment. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we as marketing people a lot come in way too soft and talking way too much about brand and way too much about great creative or way too much about you know some sort of insight. And we're not talking about short-term sales, long-term brand, the protection piece of the brand. Like we're, we're not really speaking the language of our other peers in the business, I think. And translating that from what I, at least what I think I'm hearing from you is coming to the table with really the right business acumen and plan and building that trust. And it's not all the things that we're, we think about, all the fun, sexy part of the business, uh, the creative and the brand. Pretend you're on the lead team of a big company. That has, let's say, it's Best Buy, so you have retail stores. 
Do you actually care how the labor model works? Do you care? Do you care how the inventory model works? Do you care? Do, do you actually care about that if you're on the lead team? You don't. Actually, you care. Are the stores selling a lot of stuff? And what are consumers saying? I don't want my team going in and talking about, look, here's the nifty creative stuff we did. And look at this. Because, yes, you, you actually might be interested in it. But you're way more interested in the company succeeding and you getting a bonus or promoted or whatever goes with that. And your mm -hmm. 401k and your stock price and everything else is all tied mm -hmm. to this. And, and as, a, as a marketer, I think you have to remember that. Yeah. And okay. We, I think we've learned how to definitely not get fired as a CMO. So that, well, that, no, that's I'm, good. Look, that's, that's clear. I'm telling you it's your best shot. I'm not telling you it is foolproof <laughs> and I am living proof it is not. So is, uh, is there... Is there anything you wish you would have gone back and, and changed any any in your career? Uh, yeah, you know, I took one job because I didn't want to move and that was not very smart. I took it for the wrong reason. Two, I didn't do uh, my homework. I, I've gotten way better at doing homework on exactly who I'm going to work for and what's the, what's the culture of the company. And then I can pick every single company and pick out a decision where I think, oh my God, that was horrible. It was made for all the right reasons, but in retrospect, it was horrible. And um, or it didn't work, or I expanded stuff I had to pull back, or I burned money for the company. And and there's lots of you know every one of those, I can, every company I can have those. I wouldn't think about the moving thing. That makes sense, though. I mean, we we fall in love where we live, obviously. But man, only so many Fortune 5000 CMO jobs out there and finding the right time and the right fit and the right team and the right culture. I, I can't even imagine. Look, and I was terrified to take that because the, the place I didn't want to move from, and I, it wasn't a Fortune 500, it was, it was a Remington job. And then I almost didn't take the Best Buy job because I was too afraid that I would fail at it. And in retrospect, that just looks ridiculous, but I was afraid. And I'm still grateful that they, at the time, took me because I'm sure there was tons of great candidates in Minneapolis they could have hired. So thank you, Wade Fenn. So <laughs> where, where do you think our industry is going now? And what, do you, what are you seeing out there? What are you hearing from you know, some of the people you've mentored? I think it's a tough time for marketing now. I think there has been, an, in the era of free money, where valuations were based completely on sales, I think there has been a rush to performance marketing and acquisition. And I think that is, look, and that is a cool function and it works really well and you can measure it and it's fabulous. I think if the marketplace stays like it is, where consumers are more cautious with money and value equation matters, the acquisition game, particularly as people take privacy rules and other stuff in the game, you're going to have to reawaken those old muscles. And I'm not sure that a lot of companies are ready for that or thinking about it or have the patience to do it. And, you know, the brand over time thing, it took us three years to do Best Buy Reward Zone, for example, and that was that ended up being a monster. I'm not sure a lot of companies would have that kind of patience now. And so, and I also think branding is taking on a very different flavor, given medias and everything else. But you still, in many instances, you still need the brand. And then the last thing I will say is people should stop saying, we want to be like, look at Google and look at Amazon or look at... Facebook, they don't do any marketing, especially Facebook and Google. They don't do any marketing. That's not their model. Don't use that model for you. Their model is they get clicks and views and then they sell it to marketers. Yeah, they're not a consumer brand. Yeah, they're <laughs> all the other brands need the consumers to give them money. 
people bring up the Tesla example all the time too. They don't do marketing. Well, Elon's a PR machine and that that's really not his model either. Yeah, well, look, they do PR, but I also think, yes, maybe your brand is the one in a thousand that doesn't need it. <laughs> Yo, yeah. that, that may be the Tesla or that may be something else. It's rare to be that brand and you should not start out by saying we are a lot like Tesla, Google or Facebook or Meta, I guess. You can say we are a retail company or we are a manufacturing company. We are not. We have none of these advantages that Tesla and, and Google or Meta have. Yeah. And But a lot of times marketers get trapped into the, okay, let's just do it like three of the most successful companies in the world. <laughs> Even though we don't have the value proposition, the marketing or the distribution power or the relative competitive situation that those three companies have at all. And then you 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 destroy the company by doing that. So yeah, it's like every it's it's like every branding person before a brand workshop. Like Apple, Starbucks, Disney, <laughs> you know, they, they know how to do but then you go to the Apple thing and you said, who would have had the guts to even make the lemming ad in 1984? Yeah, you don't have so much guts to do that. Jay Scheid and and uh, you know, (laughs) and they're yeah, they were crazy. Had to approve it and run it out. And if you're sitting there at some manufacturing company in the Midwest or something, and you show up with that ad, you know how hard it's going to get to be to get through the the company. Uh, um, (laughs) And speaking of CMOs getting fired, I mean, you know, Steve Jobs was really one of the brightest CMOs in history, not really CEOs, and he even got fired from his own company. I'm taking you deeper than normally we do on the podcast because I have you though. I, I want to go back to future proofing the new world of marketing. And I think you hit on some great points. And let me see if I can repeat pack what I've heard. And we can just take one more shot at kind of making sure over the next five to 10 years, how do we succeed in this business from your point of view? I heard things are going to take a lot more time. Branding has switched gears a little bit. I, I have a follow-up question there. The evaluations that have gone through the roof, I agree with you, and the private equity and, and the free money in, in terms of debt and the really race to performance marketing. I've seen a lot of D2C brands just go crazy on performance marketing. And now it's over. I, I look at Facebook and Instagram and return on ad spend and it's over. That's not happening like it was. So where should the focus be in this new world where do you see people winning? I heard patience needs to be part of the mix. And I've heard, you know, performance marketing not be at the scale than that it was. And things aren't going to be as easy. But is it anything else maybe you can add? Or did I repeat that back correctly? Or no? I think performance marketing is very important. And you should decide exactly how you want to use it. And it's a tool you can maximize mathematically. You yes. should do that. 100%. You should absolutely do that. Two, you should hold your what whole What is team. that? Just quickly, did Mike, 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 what, what does that look like though? Because I, because like, like for example, I see, I see performance marketing just that we need to look at it the right way. Look at it. You don't need to be making money. We're acquiring customers and what's the cost to that? The margins, we just need to agree on what the margins are going to be or not going to be and how much we can spend to get that, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And, but the other thing is, you have to be bringing new customers in. And one of the things you can do if you're in venture capital land is you can acquire without any brand or anything, and you should. That's what makes it work. You're just trying to get scale. You don't need the brand. You don't need a lot of that in VC land. And you should instantly just go to acquisition. Over time, though, you got to decide where's your business. And if you have enough that you can just harvest with performance marketing for the rest of your life, that's great. But it's really interesting to think about 
do these people just show up? Could I do a, a Scott Harkey brand or a Sharky brand? And they would just show up even if I had a good value prop? They wouldn't. I'm going to have to find a way to get them to come into the funnel and then harvest them, meaning I have to decide over time how I'm going to keep the funnel filled. I think what happened in the last couple of years in particular is there was so much money and valuations were so crazy. I mean, you could see it like all the food delivery and everything else, which is all I have to do is spend enough on performance marketing and I will get a valuation that is 100 times sales or something. Correct. And, I mean, you're in San Francisco. You know the tech brand model, uh, which, which is fun. Yeah, you, look, you know how... how and if you're going to give me 100 times sales, I'm going to go get that for you. Yeah, yeah. Raise a bunch of money, do a bunch of performance marketing, get an insane evaluation. Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, OfferPad, yeah. 100 other brands, you know, all in the same market. I mean, you don't think there's other tech out there and they all came from the same market because they they, yeah, they knew yeah, the model. Yeah. All the, yeah, all the home delivery, like Blue Apron, and everything else, all that. I think the real thing, though, is over time, is that a sustainable business for your investors, your company, and your consumers? And what I will say is maybe there's some businesses where it is sustainable, but in general, eventually, after you get through this raw, rapid growth phase, you are going to have to either take share from somebody else or find ways to get new customers to come to you. And the bulk of industries are like that whether you're in insurance or clothes or food, you if you're going to grow the business, you have to take it from somebody. It's not like people, there's extra meals they're going to eat or they're going to buy like five auto insurance policies. They're going to buy one. And so you have to decide how you're going to win that game, not just through performance marketing, but in the long run where you take share from somebody or you break a new market open. And that is where I think, marketing today has there's less of that going on except in in the consumer goods places mm-hmm. like Procter and coke and pepsi and, and all those yeah yeah the, the, when they have the the distribution they're they're fine yeah and so is that where reinventing i don't know if you said reinventing but the the new branding how it's changed you, you really need to think about the role you play in a consumer's life and how that role is going to help steal share from other competitors well I, I think the consumer buys a brand to do something for him or her and then they buy media or they consume media in various places. Your job in building the brand is to figure out what's that job, who wants it, and how do I talk to you in the least expensive way possible to get you to come in the funnel so my you can get harvested. And and I it, think it, that will be very gamble mom, right? Yeah. This is what what's your superiority plant claim, what's your product differentiating, what role do you play in the life, and then where are they on the media and, and boom. Yes, but a lot of companies don't have a superiority model. They have a they have an average model or they are very different. And, and so I think you have to decide how am I going to tell this story in a consistent way that over time I get more and more customers in. And what I will say is that there's every year there's always more media. There's always more choices. There's always way more to deliver the creative. So, and to deliver the story. And also there's loyalty programs and you're washing data, which you, you want to figure out how to use. How do I apply that in the best possible way to make the numbers today and then win tomorrow against all the other people that are doing this. And what I think has happened in the last couple of years, there has been a massive press to sell shit today. And you've been able to do that. And consumers have had a lot of money and they have done it. And also you didn't have the privacy things, you know, like with the Apple and everybody else. And you could do this at scale. The game is different now and it's going to be different every year. 
and the consumer value prop is different. You have to adjust the brand to win there. And what I see in a lot of companies is they will pound the snot out of the performance marketing edge. But if there's no customers there, there's no winning. You're just going to pay more. And and that's going to dry up as as the economy goes into a different direction. And marketers need to be ready to pivot. Yeah. yeah, Well, the other thing, if if you're not pivoting a little in advance of the market, it's almost always too late. Yeah. No, that makes sense. We've gotten used to things being way too easy in, in a way. Well, look, you could, for a couple of years here in certain industries, you could just jack up performance marketing and you would get the sales. And yeah. you could actually just say, you know what, we'll just raise the allowable or we'll raise the timing, we'll raise this and we'll get them in. And now there's a lot less of them maybe in some things. And you're seeing the sub models and, and you know, everyone has a stream. And now you have to make money on streaming. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. The multiples for valuations were so jacked up. You could pay whatever you wanted on performance marketing and the the spread just worked. And now as that spread gets thinner and money gets tighter, that's going to be a shift. I love that. Well, if you think about all the sub models on streaming, and I love television. I think it's golden age of television. You were paid for for signups, basically. And yep. you're valued, yep. you, you were valued for signups. And, and then you got... You got great stock price and great multiples for that. Suddenly, everyone's like, well, wait, maybe these signups don't make money. This actually, if you reverse reverse the marketing on this, and maybe we're paying too much for content, you reverse the marketing on this, suddenly your entire acquisition model is not making any money. You have to really, you're going to have to pull that back, which will hurt your subs. And then you're going to have to figure out how to get new subs in here. This is not going to be easy. Yeah, you, you have to acquire customers that make you money in the future because the evaluations won't be where they're at. Man, I love it. We, we were way over, but that's okay because I think people are going to learn from this and where we're going in terms of the economy. I mean, huge thank you to Mike for joining us. Mike Linton, former CMO at Ancestry, former CEO at eBay, former CEO of Farmers Insurance. Man, I learned a ton. Hey, if you can't wait till the next episode, you want to learn more about Mike, you'll find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can contact him on Twitter. And that's Michael A. Linton, L-I-N-T-O-N. Just one note in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance while taking notes, listen to this podcast. Just head over to our website, rebrandpod.com. We'll have all the summaries of our of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our newsletter. You can do all this stuff. You can apply to be a guest speaker on the Reband Podcast. You know, we're getting probably 20 or so a week. Really make sure when you're filling this out that we understand what brand you're working with and how your input can provide value to our marketing community. And uh, I'm excited about some of the new ones I've seen coming in. So if you've got a great one. We want to hear about it. Uh, you can always reach on social media. Our handles at Rebrand Pod. Probably easier to find me, uh, Scott Harkey. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, all the stuff. My Twitter is SharkyAZ. But uh, reach out. Love connecting with more marketing people. I'm getting a ton of really cool people LinkedIn and with me. And even follow me on Instagram, Twitter. I, I love it. So let's continue to build this community together. And again, if you want a daily stream of our marketing brilliance in your podcast feed, just hit subscribe. We got about 5,000 marketing community members subscribed. And again, just pops right in your phone, whether it's Spotify for me or others, Apple Podcasts or some of the others, iHeart, whoever. That's it for today. Remember, it's never too late to rebuild, reboot, or rebrand. 